Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I have the pleasure of being with Chris Smart, who is a chartered surveyor and a commercial manager who acts on behalf of both clients, developers, and main contractors. Chris uh, usually does jobs ranging from 5 million up to 40 million, and we're going to run through some of the issues that can come up when working with contractors, uh, disputes, and also how to procure the best build team and make sure that you maintain a really good and efficient program when doing a development. So welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, Chris, so I've got a few questions for you today. Certainly, the majority of these are issues I've had and have probably got quite wrong, so it'd be great to hear from you about your words of wisdom. I'm sure you dealt with them in a professional manner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some more than others. So, let's start. So, can you first just explain the role of quantities of air or commercial manager or financial manager, thinking about how it fits into the world of of a developer? Yeah, so a, a quantity surveyor or a commercial manager, the, the, the job description is basically you're looking after the finances of a, of a construction project. If you sort of compare it to what a project manager does, a project manager tends to be more uh, involved in the sort of delivery of the project and ensuring that it's delivered on time and to a certain specification, whereas a commercial manager or a quantity surveyor is more geared towards trying to ensure that a project is profitable. If that is, if you work for the main contractor, um, if you work for the client as a consultant, you'd be involved in advising on the likely cost of the project, managing those costs and managing the contractor throughout the, the build phase, agreeing the final account with the main contractor, sort of overseeing and settling disputes. It's quite a broad role. Okay, brilliant. So essentially, if you're client-facing or, or contractor-facing, you're essentially looking after one of those size finances for the life cycle of the development. Yeah, exactly. So as, as, as I work for a main contractor, I'd, be, I'd often be sat opposite on the other side of a negotiation table to the, um, to the, the client's cost consultant because he's, he's saying that I'm taking advantage and trying to get more money than I'm entitled to and I'll be saying that he's trying to prevent me earning what I'm, what I'm entitled to, to earn on the job. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite, well, it's quite, gets quite interesting, yeah. <laughs> okay, so as a developer or the client... There are a number of options at your disposal to procure building works in general or to get a main contractor on board. Can you give the listeners a quick run-through of what some of those options are and why and when you might utilise them? Yes, so if I touch on three that are the common ones that most people who listen to this podcast would have heard of, you've got traditional procurement, design and build procurement or form of procurement and construction management. Now, They've each got their, their uses, they've each got their pros and cons, and the way I try and think about them is where the client's priorities lie in terms of time, time, cost and quality. And what I mean by that is if, for example, you wanted to, if cost was your key driver, you might look at going down a design and build route because the design and build route 
puts the vast majority of the risk on the contractor because any design risk is with him. Therefore, if a de- design de- develops through the build phase, which it invariably does, any of those changes are basically his responsibility. So the client's got, an, got a really good level of cost certainty at the outset. So you sign the contract, you know that you're you know, all being well, you're build is going to cost you what that contract sum is cost certainty is the key phrase yeah, that one, yeah, isn't it? yeah yeah traditional on the other hand is is the one that is most commonly used it's you know don't get it wrong it's still it's still it's still very useful and you and you still do get cost certainty but the cost certainty is more dependent on the quality of the, the design at the point at which you go into contract because under traditional the the client appoints the architect so in effect the design is the client's risk so any any change in design that, that requires the contractor to change the works and it costs him more money the contractor is entitled to be paid for that so you, you will get change there and you will incur costs there if the design is not detailed at the start and that's not necessarily just changes in the design that's what we call variations or PC yeah. sums which is that could just be the client changing their mind on, on yeah, well, that, what they yeah. want yeah, and that, that still falls under yeah. the bracket of um, a change in, in the design, effectively. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of negatives there, but a traditional traditional form of contract is used because the client maintains good control over the design. If you if you're if design is going back to that time cost quality thing I spoke about, if quality and sort of specification is is your is one of your key drivers, traditional is a good way to go. And also, it is the most widely used, so you've got you've probably got the pick of the contractors to go to. They'll all be familiar with that process. Architects will be familiar with that process. Your design team will probably, sorry, your consultancy team will perhaps be more familiar with that than design and build or construction management. So, design and build basically, especially in the lower end, and when I say lower end, we're talking yeah. about lower amounts of value. Yeah. So, the smaller build values, um, that's going to open up a lot more choices of for your main contractor i think so i think you'll struggle to appoint a builder on a design and build basis on a on a on a three hundred thousand pound sort yeah. of uh, loft and rear extension okay job got you and then just finally construction management i actually think i think one of your one of your guys was asking you to sort of discuss the sort of risk associated with construction management and it is the most risky for the client and the reason for that is that Whereas in the other two situations, design and build or traditional, the client enters into a main contract with the contractor, and then the contractor enters into a contract, a subcontract with all, this, all this, the rest of the supply chain. Under construction management, the client enters directly into contract with the supply chain, right. and the the contractor acts. So there's a huge amount more administration. Yeah, well, a huge amount more administration, and it and it means that it's coming out of the client's pocket rather than the contractor's pocket yeah um and the, the, the contractor or the construction manager in this instance would is employed on more of a sort of fee earning basis to basically you know manage the build manage the program manage the manage the design so there's, there's a lot less risk for the contractor but at the same time the contractor's not trying to squeeze margins because it's not his money so at the same time it could be a good point on quality as well true yeah true exactly so you do get good quality you the client has the you know full control over the design at that yeah. point it also Which sometimes is a negative thing as well it, if they're not well, experienced they in that type of thing. i don't know what they want but yeah 
it's often used on much bigger projects because you need quite a needs quite a sort of robust infrastructure. Yeah, you need a decent yeah. team around you. And so, what kind of uh, builds would that be used on higher so, value? So, for example, it was used on the Batsy Power Station, or okay. it's still being used on Batsy Power Station. The, 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 one of the well, the key positive behind construction management is 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 time related. So, again, going back to the time cost quality thing, because the client employs the the contract subcontractors directly, you don't have to have all the design ready at the point in which you go into contract. So you can get it, on site quicker. Yeah, so the, contract, the client can place an order with the, the earlier trades, the ground worker, the concrete worker, whatever it might be, and then the design for the latter works yeah. follow. So I imagine it's things like government contracts are there where you, they just need... Or I imagine HS2 is probably done under that type of contract as well because they just need things started and then yeah, not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean... Batsy Power Station is a, is a good example because you're, you're never going to get on a, on, a, on a job that vast to ask a, a design team and or a, there's about ten architects on that on that particular um, scheme to ask a design team to get your design complete and to a point where contractors can price it. Yeah, it's going to take years. It would take, it would, it would take years, and also, I mean, the Batsy Power Station is another good example because the because that scheme changed halfway through after the market, after the high-end resi stuff yeah. just collapsed. just collapsed. Yeah. They, they thought, hang on, we need to change this to retail. They changed a little bit to retail. If you'd done that under another form of contract, you'd have had massive costs associated with you know, the, the, yeah. the change, okay. if that Got makes you. sense. So, so really, for most of our listeners who are probably doing the smaller value development, so that's sort of anything up to maybe... Five ten million pounds uh, from maybe two hundred grand upwards. What you what you'd see is ma- the majority of those would be traditional. Yeah, uh, five, five million quid upwards. You can definitely look at DMB. Yeah, definitely. Okay. We do quite a lot of DMB at um, at those sort of um, contract sum values, so it is doable. Okay, brilliant. So if then I've worked out my procurement route. If I'm now trying to get a builder or main contractor on board for, say, a project up to around a million pounds, what do I need to consider and what should I be sending out to these prospective contractors? Okay, so, I mean, I assume you're talking about a, a tender inquiry there. So, yeah. first of all, it's worthwhile considering, depending on what sort of value we're talking about here, it's worthwhile considering getting a you know, quantity surveyor to, to oversee that for you, to collate all this information, um, because you want to... You want to make sure you're sending out as much information to your your tenderers um, as possible, so that a they give you the most robust price possible, and b they can't turn around at a later date and say, oh, "I never knew that." Yeah, so it's key, obviously, to have that design. Uh, well, the drawings, the design yeah. schedule, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So absolutely. So I'd always, I'd always recommend, that. yeah, drawing specifications. Um, I'd recommend putting together pricing schedule so that prices that come back are all in the same format which allows easier comparison. So would that be things like breaking up the tiling per square metre, breaking up, I don't know, the steel work, whatever it well, is, yeah, groundwork, well, things like breaking, that? Break it into packages, yeah. and then the contractor or the tenderer will put its price against each element of that, and then you get you get back you know, three, four, five yeah, tenders. Yeah, they're like-for-like like comparables, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that should also sort of increase your, sort of decrease your um, the time spent assessing the tenders, and you, you should, should come out of it knowing that, the tenders are like for like 
it's, it's endless. Planning information can go in there. Your, your payment terms, your schedule of payments, your the former contract you're intending to get them to enter into, so that because you know it's not uncommon for you to appoint a builder and then everything going great, you got a, you got the right price and you like you like the builder you're going to appoint, and then they go, hang on, I'm not, I don't I'm not I don't agree to your payment terms. I'm paying quicker than that, or I don't agree to the, I, I, we don't use JTT, we use some other contract and. Yeah, it's important to get these things so on, on, in the open on, early. Just on payment terms. So one of the things that we've done, where and I'm, I know you mentioned on this, say we're doing a million pound build, uh, you get a QS involved. Some of the smaller builds that I'll be doing, where there might be sort of three hundred grand. One of the things we do is we get a contract administrator in, and they'll be chartered yeah. bricks, or they'll be um, chartered uh, maybe architect. Because what we find is there's not so much work on a smaller job for a QS to get involved and to pay out those costs. So if we've already got someone who's working on it, who can sort of put that contract admin hat on, that's great. But then on the other point of it is if we've got a lender lending us money for the development, then what's really important on the payment terms with the contractor and our drawdowns from the lender is that they marry up because the last thing you want is to go, okay, my contract terms with the, my, sorry, my payment terms with the contractor are, I don't know, every 14 days, yeah. but then you've got to put in your details for the drawdown and you're not going to get them for two weeks. So that can be a bit of an issue. Or you might be waiting on the lender's um, surveyor mm. who's got to come out and inspect. So what we've done is we try and get whoever's doing the surveying for the lender to do the surveying for the contract administration as well. And if we can, that sort of kills two birds with one stone, just on the smaller jobs anyway. Yeah, no, it makes, no that's, it makes good sense. Actually, I should have said, you know, smaller jobs won't, won't warrant the, their own own surveyor. Um, it's just not, it's not feasible. But <clears throat> a decent uh, project manager or contract administrator, depending on uh, how, you, how you want to do it, um, should... Be more than should be more than capable of um, you know managing that that process for you. Um, but yeah, you're right. You don't want to you don't want to be paying your builder on 14 day terms and only getting your money in from the bank on 35 yeah, or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So what else should I be considering to send out to them? We've talked about obviously the design, um, real real in depth design, schedule of works, payment terms, type of contract. Anything else then that should be going out to them, or is that kind of Obviously, we talk about planning drawings and things like yeah. that. Is there anything that you think, oh, God, that's an absolute definite and at the top of your list? We've gone through those. I mean, there are, there are, there are plenty more, but if you're talking about um, a relatively small contract value, um, you know, something in the region of half a million pounds, that's probably the kind of uh, the expanse of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So with development, you hear horror stories all too often about contractors going bust or into administration or deserting site pulling sort of tools off site and running off what should a, de- a, a developer or a client be looking for when they appoint that contractor to minimize any of those issues well the first thing you're doing is looking into this a step before that you shouldn't be going out to tender with anyone that you're not sure is is healthy is a decent company that'll be from your sort of pre-qualifying questionnaire yeah if you're a developer you know churning out a number of projects a year you want to be trying to pull you want to be trying to get together a database of 
contractors that are reliable and, and you want to be... Sort of your preferred suppliers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. precisely. Because um, they've already answered those peaking questions yeah. and you know that they've got the yeah. uh, balance sheet to kind of cope yeah. with, exactly. with with any with these types of size jobs. Precisely. Um, and also, if you're, if you're using a new contractor, say, because at some point you are going to have to use a new contractor, things I recommend doing is getting an independent credit check done, which they're, they're not too expensive, but there's certain companies you can use who will do a credit check yeah. for you. Again, like we said, to check the financial health of the company. I don't think there's any substitute for going to a, a builder's previous um, projects or or current current live projects. You want to get a feel for how they manage how they manage a build. Are there are there glaring health and safety issues? Is the place a pigsty? If it is, this is yeah, it's just demonstrating they don't run things properly. And do you really want to be associated with that? Ask previous clients. How they got on? That's a, that's a good one. And oh, and the other one I was going to say is the, the, the guy who you you like, the guy who you have confidence can who can sort of deliver the job is the guy who is actually working on your project because often the one the the, the chap who the one that sells you yeah. the sizzle doesn't yeah. deliver the sausage. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Very well put. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, you're making sure that it, once it gets to say the contract stage, that whoever your the contact is that you want to be just uh, on site every day and running that job is the person mm. you expect to be, yeah. and it's not farmed out to someone yeah. else. Yeah. Or at least, if you know the director you like, who's like you say, sold you, sold you the dream. Yeah, you, know, you want to say to him, well, how, how often are you actually going to be on my site? Yeah, I want you that. Yeah, you know, I, I want you there twice a week at least, or something like that. Um, yeah, just so you know well, that. That's, that's brilliant. I've I've had that in the past where we've had sort of you speak to the person and then you never see him again. <laughs> until until it's sort of payday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, so, exactly. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And another thing I'd just add to that on the finance side, so checking the finances is obviously looking at companies' house, going on companies' gazette to see if any they've been put into liquidation or administration, anything like that. Checking the size of their other jobs because if their turnover is a million pound a year and they've just taken on another job of a million pounds are they going to be able to do your job too um so it's just understanding those things as well yeah that's that's an excellent point actually i know a few people are interested to hear your thoughts on which contract to use because we kind of discussed putting certain things in the contract so what are your thoughts on what the best type of contracts to use are on specific developments there there, there are a few contracts out there that that people would probably have heard of, and that the, the the most commonly used ones are JCT um, and NEC. For the purpose, you know, for the for the purposes of the people that I'm assuming are listening to this podcast, JCT is is the way to go. And why it's, is that? Well, it's geared towards any project size, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, NEC, on the other on the other hand, is much more geared towards well, a public sector work and B projects with a much larger contract value. Okay, JCT has a it, it's widely used. It's been around for donkey's years, whereas NEC is actually relatively new on the new on the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 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 your consultants out there that you use are much more familiar, generally speaking, much more familiar with the JCT suite of contracts than than NEC. It's got a much clearer, well, not much clearer, but a better defined. Sort of client contractor risk allocation right, so okay. people norm- people understand who holds what element of risk hey, in, in such, the JCT yeah. that's such a big big sort of point there so it's 
who takes on the risk yeah. for certain jobs. So, for example, in JCT, I'm assuming a lot of it is in that design uh, phase from the client. What happens if things are not by done by a contractual date and all that kind of thing? So, what would maybe be an example of a job where you might have an NEC and why? And it's just to kind of show the listeners why that might not be applicable for some of the jobs that they're doing. So, so the NEC is a, it's, like I say, it's relatively new. It's been sort of designed and thought through with all the right, with all the right sort of intentions. Um, it's designed to try and move away from this adversarial environment that you have um, in in contracting so it's supposed to be a more sort of collaborative contract whereby disputes are are discussed and resolved as you go rather than them being sort of left to the end and then you get a big bun fight and everyone falls out the idea is that if a contractor a compensation event as it's referred to in the NEC um, a contractor is obliged to actually discuss that kind of as and when right. it, it arrives yeah. or it manifests itself so it is good, but it's very admin heavy. You would need a a, a very experienced team around you, but b a, a, a big team around you yeah. to administer the contract. And so the contract value needs to be very large in order to be able to, to justify justify the expense of all that administration yeah. as well. Yeah, and also people aren't as familiar uh, familiar with it. So there's no point in having this lovely collaborative, all singing or dancing NEC contract if you've got a design no team, and a consultant yeah. team, and don't know how to use it properly. Okay. Um, so. So yeah, JCT, is, stick with JCT. So what would you say the main benefits of a JCT are? Just the allocation of risk is clearly defined. It, it, it's got it's high levels of familiar, familiar, it's hard to say, familiarity. Yeah, it's got sort of insures both sides really from yeah. the contractor's point of view but also from the client's point of view. Yeah. Um, just just on that, what would you say to, is the kind of, because I get a lot of people who are doing certainly smaller jobs who say their builders won't want to sign JCTs and they'll just do their own contracts and things like that what what would you say to some of those people and would would that concern you i mean yeah. or is or is there no point in doing a JCT below a certain build it would concern me i mean i'm as a surveyor i'm sort of naturally sort of risk averse i would i say so i'd always want to see a contract in place yeah. and and you want it to be a recognised contract. Now, the builders might just not like the sound of a JCT contract. Actually, it works both ways. It protects them as much as it protects the client. Yeah. Um, he's got you know, the, the right to take you to adjudication as much as you do to him. Mm. Um, and also, he's which got the don't, right to which, be paid for any extra work yeah, that's it, done. Yeah. When you start getting into slightly higher numbers, anything, you know, half a million is a big number, but anything in that region, you must have a contract, and I'd suggest it has to be... JCT. Yeah. Just on that, what would you say the minimum amount would be? <laughs> if you're doing like a hundred grand bill, would you still use a JCT? Well, I guess that's another positive of the JCT is that it works whatever the size of the bill because you you got you got everything from JCT major works at the at the top end of the scale, which yeah. can deal with hundreds of millions of pounds, um, all the way down to JCT home homeowners yeah. build without consultants, I think it's called. Okay. Where, which which is simple enough. I mean, so it really is every yeah. kind of yeah. Value. So okay. simple enough for a lay person to administer it themselves. So oh, brilliant! Okay, so there's no of... excuse, and you just download it for forty quid off yeah, the website, exactly. isn't it, or something yeah. like that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, brilliant. So, have you got any advice on things to consider then, if a developer is keen to get the project on site as quickly as possible, but maybe they haven't got that complete? 
They can't wait for the whole design process is done. They're trying to reduce the pre-construction durations. What would you say are some tips there? It's, it's, it's a difficult one because although you want to get the site as quickly as possible so that your job is completed as quickly as possible and therefore you can get it to market and, and start seeing some returns from that product, if you rush it and you enter into a contract with a design that's not particularly detailed you are going you're more than likely going to incur cost increases and time increases because if there's something that is missed on that design the the contractor will be well within his rights to to, to say hang on a second you you know you didn't tell me that these were the windows that you wanted to order and these are actually on a 10 week lead in from Italy or somewhere and I need a 10 week extension of time please so that design is just so it, such it, it is key yeah. having said that there are things you can look at because I mean you might toss it up and, and think it actually is better to take that risk and get my product to to, to market that bit quicker and if that costs me an extra 100 grand it's worth it because I've made that money back in my in my rental or whatever it is so there's always there's always two sides to it but one thing you could you could consider and it goes back to us having talking about having a a, a sort of robust a robust list of preferred suppliers. If you've got some guys that you trust and you know can deliver a job for you, there's no, there's not necessarily any harm in negotiating with them rather than competitively tendering. Because what? So you, what do you mean by <coughs> the difference in negotiating so, and competitively? So tendering? if you've got a builder that you that you know and you've used him a couple of times and he's, you know, he's, reliable, he's, he's, he's a, yeah, he's reliable. He's he does he reliable. Does, he's he does, the, he's yeah, the key yeah, one there. Yeah, yeah, he does the job. You could send in the tender inquiry, like what we talked about earlier, yeah, um, and just get him to price it in a non-competitive environment. And what he'll do is, you'll submit your price. You'll want the pricing sh- schedule to go out so that he submits you a, a nicely broken down price, so that you can see. And that's where we talked about your, yeah, I don't know, price per square foot of yeah. plastering. In case there's yeah. more plastering to come, you know that he can. Well, you uh, can charge it at that rate. You can get a price back from him and, and, and assess it and see whether actually he's given me quite a good price there. I know that I've not I've, I've not got the lowest price win situation there where he's just gone in too low and he's going to be trying to recover his cost throughout the build and it's going to be a battle every day. So there is, there is benefits to negotiating. You'll need, you'll need someone who knows what they're doing to review his tender so yeah. that someone can so that you can assess whether it actually is a decent price, whether he is kind of taking, the, and, taking and for, the mickey a little and bit. And for those smaller jobs where you're not employing a QS for the duration of the job, is it fairly easy to just get that out for, for an ad hoc job to a QS to oversee that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you'd advise doing that, would you definitely? Yes. If you're going to look to negotiate with, with, with someone, i.e. just get their price and, and say to them, I think you're high here, I yeah. think you're high there, can you look at that, can you try and reduce that? You want that? to be able to evidence you, it with we, a qualified person. You want, you want it done... You want it done properly. You want to, you want to know that you are getting especially a good price. because the whole purpose of this is to get on site quickly because you cannot wait for all the yeah the so detailed design. So, so the benefit the benefit of that you still need a good design. Yeah, but the benefit is you haven't got that that tendering process to deal with. Yeah, you haven't got to get because you've contractors. Got your preferred guy that yeah. you've got that good relationship with. You know how they work on site. And, and he's yeah. he's he's going to want to do it because he knows that he's more to come as well. He's yeah. More to come. He knows that he's not in competition with four other people. So there are yeah there are benefits to it. And like I said, it avoids that drawn out process of of competitively tendering 
Um, Which essentially is a race to the bottom. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come on to that later when I start talking about how companies survive on tiny margins or, or don't survive. So, okay, I'm trying to do this in sort of uh, chronological order of, of a build. So, there was, Sorry, there was one other thing I was going to add to getting on site quicker. Yeah. That is, everyone sort of thinks about a program in terms of yeah, the start on site and the finish on site dates. Your program should be de- detailed enough to show the pre-construction phases as well. So give, give a listener some example of these pre-construction phases. So it will be a program that the architect's bought into, so the architect knows that he's got to have, have his design complete to a certain level by X date. Okay, and then um, you've got the structural engineers, you've it, got the is, surveys, ground yeah, surveys, exactly. it's, it's, it's a good example. Sort of stuff, yeah. Is the architect looking after your planning submission? If he is, yeah. he needs to know when he's got to have his planning submission sorted yeah. by. Because these things... Or release any conditions of planning before you can... Exactly, because they will stop you starting. So having a programme that's detailed in the pre-construction phases helps focus everyone's minds on what they've got to do before they get on site. And and it stops it sort of slipping. Okay, some great great tips there. So obviously we're now kind of getting onto site. So how can you or the developer ensure that project build costs and and manage clearly and can you offer maybe some pointers as to how to stay on top of the finances during the build and also if there are any pitfalls to look out for well not necessarily during the build but even before the build starts getting the design to a decent level before you enter into contract someone's key so that's the that's we're not even finished and that's my biggest takeaway already is just how important the detail of design is so that for listeners, that's the drawings, that's the schedule of works. It's not just your planning drawings, it's your construction drawings. Yeah. I mean, actually, before you even start, perhaps, is the question of value engineering. Now, value engineering, it, it sounds like a sort of, sounds like management speak, but it is actually a, it's a specific task. And what it is, you get all the stakeholders around a table. Stakeholders in, yeah, in, so, a, in a million pound development could be yeah. architect, obviously the developer. Yeah. Um, structural engineer, the contractor, the groundswork team, the project manager, the yeah. possibly even the estate agent who's putting these to market. Yeah, so you would, yeah, exactly. You, you sort of ticked a lot of ticked a lot of those guys off there. You want to be objectively looking at the design and thinking, has the architect over-engineered here at all? Do I do I need those fancy finishes in my office? In, in this commercial development that I'm doing, because that's adding fifty grand to the to the thing. Do I need you know? Do I need fancy stone here? Why don't I just use a ceramic tile? That's just sort of you know, one example of the sort of thing you can look at. Because those things like that aren't necessarily adding value to you as the client. Um, point. You're you know if you're if, if you're building a hundred thousand square foot cat a office, your returns are coming through the square footage of the office plate itself, not necessarily through the lovely fancy fit lovely fancy. F- fittings and furnishings in the toilets that the architect wants to put in there yeah exactly that's a, that's a point, um, point. so right at the outset it might, it might be worth doing going through that sort of process to see if you can actually you know nip you know, and that, steal any money away that way and that's like the key part of from the developers due diligence is to be looking at right what's the pound per square foot of the gdv of this and what's mm. the pound per square foot that i want to be putting into it yeah as well because that's obviously if you're building a house in Mayfair and building a house in Bolton the spec's going to be different in order for you to get a decent margin at the end yeah when you look at how many years it takes for you to make back that money yeah through your leasing your office you might 
but the wake up call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so it's getting them together, and, and obviously you, you do that from the outset to just get everyone to cast an eye over how how things are looking. Because I know you might you might look at something and go, well, actually, does our target market even want those things Precis- that we're putting all this money into? Exactly. And I think I spoke to you before about a situation I had where the, uh, the architect drew these ridiculously fancy fireplaces in these apartments which were right in the centre of the, the main living space on these apartments and to be fair the estate agent uh, about the only sort of useful thing he said on that particular job <laughs> um, said look you don't need them the people who buy these apartments in Primrose Hill they, don't, they, they want to come into a blank canvas and sort of do what they want with the space they don't want a whopping great fireplace in the, yeah. middle, in the middle of their living room that, that, that restricts what they can do so take it out, and that saved the client tens and tens of thousands of pounds, and he's actually in a better position than he was before. And so when would you try to have that meeting, once you've chosen the contractor? or You'd want a contractor on board. Well, no, not necessarily, actually, but often you get benefit from having the contractor involved because they can advise well, on I, buildability. I, I, I guess it's not a one-off meeting, is it? It's, no. it's to, to try and have these as much as possible so that you can get the most out of everyone and everyone singing off the same page. Ideally, the contractor should be involved because A, he'll, he'll look at elements of the design and say, that's expensive and you perhaps don't need it. You might want to look to change it. And B, they can say to you, change that and you can save this amount of money. We've obviously got getting the stakeholders together. Mm. What other things can you do to ensure bill costs and so, are kept kind of in, in check? It might be a fairly, a fairly obvious statement, but ensuring that you've got a decent contingency in place now on a traditional contract i've never <laughs> i've never worked on a traditional contract where the variation account has been less than 10 percent of the overall contract sum wow. so, so, so say so say you've say you you're in a contract for 10 million quid yeah you would normally expect to have a a million quid's worth of change you say you well, you say you'd normally expect to, but you also said you've never had it less. So what Correct. would you say is a normal amount? Because your, your, your kind of, the way in which you worded that yeah. leads me to, to believe that 10% is, you're lucky if you get a 10% contingency. It, it depends on, it depends on the, the project. Obviously, every project's got to be reviewed on its own merit. Yeah. If you're, if you're on a project that's got a lot of works in the ground and under the contract, that's your risk. Because it should be noted, you could look to offload that onto a contractor, that risk through the contract. Build, for example, yeah. Design build. See, I'm learning. There you go. <laughs> um, 10% is probably a good starting point, put it that way. If you're doing a, a massive job with works in the ground, for, as an example, you might want to look at something closer to 15%. Okay. It'll be interesting to know what the average sort of contingency that you end up with that variation contingency would be. But I mean, to be honest, I, I normally try and put in twenty percent yeah. on anything I'm doing, and, and and normally we hit that. So. Well, exactly. I mean, cause you, you've got you've got other things to contend with that me as a build as the builder wouldn't have to contend with. So whilst I'm worried about um, design change because I've got to because it takes it's more work. You've got to pay for my design change, and you've also got to pay the architect's time probably to draw that design. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's other things. Well, that that's, that's, that's another example of depending on who you're you're working on behalf of, whether it's the client or um, or the contractor. But putting yourself in the client's shoes, 
I mean, I think there when you said 10% contingency, that's on the contractor. Precisely, yeah. But when, so when we as developers are putting in a contingency, if you imagine that that contractor's got a 10% and we've got things like finance overruns and penalty fees on that and then, like you say, all the design team stuff, like I, I, I think you're, you're mad if you're not putting 20% in. Yeah, that, that's why I think it's always worthwhile doing a value engineering review because that million pound um, variation account might actually only be £700,000 because you've managed to save three hundred yeah. just by tweaking some design. And I'd also point out that a good contractor should be more than happy to be involved in and drive that drive that process. So just to kind of go off at a tangent then, what would you look for as a good contractor? What What is a good contractor look like to you? It's one who communicates well for a start because... That is so often just the downfall of not just people in building, it's the downfall of yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. You want one who is on top of the, the the account, on top of the changes, so that they're not leaving it right to the end. And they go, oh, hang on, you changed that back in May, um, and that's going to cost me that costs five grand, please. You want them to be on top of it all the time. I mean, at the beginning, you mentioned when you're going to the sort of previous sites to see health and safeties in order and things like that, and then. For for me, especially on some of the smaller jobs, I find contractors they're kind of they're just admin isn't great. So if they've got a specific person or department to do the administration and things like that, that's that's always a, a massive help. Definitely helps because it means that the guy who's delivering the job can focus on just that delivering yeah. the job rather than worrying about the the paperwork that goes behind yeah, it. Yeah, um, albeit that is vitally important. But you just want you just want one who's going to keep you abreast of issues because there will be issues yeah it's not like as, hiding from bad news it's no, look let's get let's deal with the problems precisely. as they can as a developer you, you want as few surprises as possible don't yeah. you um, so you just want yeah. it goes back to you I think you're, you're right at the beginning you talked about the um, that's why you start kind of on a design and build it's about the cost certainty you want as much cost certainty throughout the life cycle of this development as you can possibly get regardless of whether you're using design and build or traditional. Okay, so we kind of talked about some of the things we can do as a developer to make sure costs are managed. I suppose I'd give the same question, but for maintaining the programme. So how can you maintain the programme through the life cycle of a build once you've kind of already started? What are some of the things that you can do to just ensure efficiency? I mean, the key thing is to just be on top of the builder and perhaps... Dare I say it, not take his word for where he is. So you should always have a detailed program in place, which allows you to monitor his progress. And so that's things like a Gantt chart. <clears throat> yeah, help with that. that was a real oversimplification when you say Gantt chart. It's a very sophisticated <laughs> tools. But yeah, it's effectively a Gantt chart where the, where the weeks or the duration is plotted across the top and the bottom, and the activities involved are plotted down the left hand side. Yeah, and it and it. It tracks it across that way. And you can have a drop line down to right. Yeah. This is where we should yeah. be by this. Point. But you should be telling your consultants to be advising you where the contractor is on his program and get them to do a drop line. They should know what a drop line is, so that you can you got you got a, a visual then of exactly where he's ahead, where he's behind, whether that's going to 
result in a critical delay. And how often should this be done? Well, monthly yeah. is, a, is okay. probably a reasonable assessment. If, oh. if it's a, a, a much shorter contract where you're trying to get through a load of work in a much shorter duration, perhaps it needs to be done fortnightly. Yeah. It's, it, it's and would you be timing that in with your with your meetings, with your, with your stakeholders? And obviously you might not need all the stakeholders at every meeting, but certainly you're sort of, if you've got a project manager, if you've got an architect, if you've got a contract administrator, if you've got some surveyors on board, or cool. as, just, as, just, as you get to a, the, the site manager. As you start dealing with larger projects, you want to be having these monthly, or perhaps, perhaps fortnightly, but let's say monthly progress meetings, and I'd be encouraging or forcing the contractor to be issuing you with a, a you know, quite a thorough report which will include a program. Yeah. So it will show it will do it will do a drop line, it will show how he's getting on with program. Maybe he wants to highlight any key issues that have arisen mm-hmm. um, so that they can be voiced around a table and a solution can be sorted. Perhaps he would you might want to get um, input from your design team. You might want to get an architect's sort of mini report to, to say how the design's coming on. Like I said, if you're if you're on a five hundred thousand pound job it's it's not really applicable. Yeah, but it could also you can be meeting with the builder on yeah. site once a week if it's a, if it's a, a short term sort of build so i think it's it's not just look if it's a if it's a high value build you do it if it's not you don't you still take the principles and the principles you stick to it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got 10 members of staff doing these different jobs sometimes when it's smaller you've got to get the i don't know project management hat you've got to get the contract administrator Correct. hat on and and definitely and, and, and you it's still got to be done. Definitely. And you touched on it before, you, you, you might employ a project manager who basically has to oversee all this stuff, so the commercial yeah. stuff, the design stuff, which is absolutely fine, and you should be putting the onus on him to, you know, be on top of these things. Or her. Or her, sorry. Yes, course, yeah, that's, no, exactly. Okay, so, yeah, and like we say, it doesn't need to be a 30-page report. It can be a simple page report or it could just be a conversation but it's got to be done and, and it's got to like having some evidence and I know sort of these progress reports and the program is is not certainly under a JCT is not contractually they're not contractually obliged to keep to that program am I right in the JCT the program is not a contract document the JCT will stipulate start on site dates and the practical completion dates how the contractor gets to the, gets from one date to the other yeah. is up to him. So he can be, he can, I don't know. He, he could do all the work in the last week if, yeah, he, if exactly. he could. But you've got to be a bit realistic about yeah. it. And, yeah. and, and also, it's just good practice. But that doesn't preclude you from having a programme that you can review regularly and, and say to him, hang on, you're clearly behind here. Yeah, there's no way this is going yeah. to make up and then yeah. you can make a decision on what yeah. you can do to kind of get things, get things sorted. Another, another useful thing to do, which is kind of, from a put my commercial hat on now is you look at the amount of the amount you've paid the contractor compared to where you are in the program so if you're 75% of the way through the program but only paid him 25% of his contract sum chances are he's quite late and that's a very simple way and and, and it's never failed me yet you know you get to the end of the job you've got four weeks left and you're looking at it thinking he's only done five million of his 10 million pound contract how is he going to do five million pounds worth of work in the last four weeks? Yeah. Something's not right. Yeah, um, those are obviously quite extreme examples, but you know, little things like that just are... give you a, a bird's eye view of the whole kind mm. of yeah. overlook of it. And, and uh, any sort of specific KPIs or sort of 
tools or metrics that you want to be looking at in these monthly meetings or fortnightly meetings or or these just catch-ups? We, t- we, t- we touched on the few already, but staying on programme is not 100% the contractor responsibility. It often gets overlooked that the design team need to be on top of things as well. Yeah. The design's late or inadequate, the project's going to be late. So you might want to think about... And also, just from the developer's point of view, if you're getting second fix items for the project, you need to be knowing when you're going to be ordering these items and things like yeah, that. Yeah, particularly well. if they're on long, in long, on long lead-ins. Yeah. So yeah, you might want to, you might want to be issuing a design release schedule, which the contractor will need to buy into. So you're basically saying you're getting the contractor to say, "I need this stone needs to be going on the walls on the first of September." Therefore, you need to tell me exactly what this stone is and where I'm getting it from on the first of May, because it takes ten weeks to get here. It then got it's then got to be machined into whatever size slabs it needs to be you know and, and these these things can take a long time yeah um so these there needs to be a lot of forethought into I into, mean, the, into people, this sort of stuff and this goes back to kind of choosing design and build or, or traditional people go into these things thinking oh well i'll save money from doing it not doing design and build but actually when you look at all the work that you've got to ensure and you're and, and, and you're taking control of that risk mm. Uh, there's a lot to be said for a design and build contract if, you, if you're kind of time and energy poor yeah. and, and, and don't have the resources to put into it. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, so any other sort of control tools then that you would... I think we've kind of... No, I think, I think, we, t- I think we, touched, we touched on them. So we all know between developers, between sort of clients and, and contractors that disputes occur every now and again or, or sometimes more, more often than not. How can you best protect yourself as the developer, as the client, from having these disputes? And are there any key items that developers should look out for? Disputes are, to you know, a lesser or greater extent, an, an inevitability on a, on, a, on a construction project. It's kind of it's how you, you know, how you protect yourself against against these things. So the key key thing is that you need to get your records in place, um, and I'll give you. I'll give you an example. So, say for example, the the contractor has turned around to you and said that your architect specified the windows too late, and it's resulted in a f- four week critical delay on the on the project. You're going to get your, you're going to get your building four weeks later because you couldn't get watertight. Blah blah blah. It's delayed the um, the follow on trades, and you're thinking, uh, hang on a second, he hasn't even got his roof on yet, or he hasn't even made the window openings yet. So. How am I? How's my sort of delay in issuing the window? Um, he, you're not ready for the windows, basically. Regardless yeah, of whether yeah. I'm, I've, I've, and that's and that's what you would call a concurrent delay, which means that actually there is no delay because he couldn't, have, he wasn't going to finish on time anyway. So therefore, sense. he can't be paid for that time. So he's not. So you could you could argue it's never, yeah. it's never quite as clear cut as that. Yeah. You could argue that um, he's not entitled that to that extension of time. You would nip that in the bud if you had decent records to show that. Yeah, you know, he, he, was, he wasn't. He wasn't the window ready. Window openings were yeah, there. He wasn't here's ready. a photo of it, timestamped. Yeah, 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 he wasn't ready. Um, and here's my his yeah, timestamped photos. Here's the meeting minutes where we recorded it. Here's the um, emails where we recorded here's the it. Program schedule. Yeah, that exactly. We in our monthly route with the precisely, drop line. Precisely. Yeah. Again, I'd be saying I'd be ensuring if I was you that your consultants are on top of that for you. That's their job. 
Do you know what? I've, I've got a quick example of that. So I've had an issue where at the end, again, we, so we, we obviously weren't good enough during the, the project and the programme and the, the dispute arised at the end of the build about, I don't know, 16 weeks before where there was a change in the, de- in the design they said that, that we had to pay extra because they had to move a load of electrics and chase into already plastered walls and we were able to actually go back and have a look at our Contra Admin's business Instagram page of when he had posted one of his walkthroughs of the site to see whether or not it had actually been boarded and plastered and we <laughs> saw because it had been put up and it shows the date that, that came through and obviously like it's, it's, it just shows how important having that evidence is and having the records are because when a dispute came up which was sort of I mean it was at least 16 weeks after that had happened and you don't have a good memory of it and you might not even agree on it so it's, it's if you've got it it's there such a useful tool Instagram <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah exactly just keep your records you know keep on top of your records it's, it, if it all goes ticks up they will get you out of trouble so yeah. I guarantee your contractor won't be keeping as good a record as you if you stick to those sort of few key points I think you mentioned you want to talk about LADs yes is there anything specific you want to it's how you calculate them for a start is that so for example so li- li- liquidate, liquidated and ascertained damages and essentially it's if the developer or client is entitled to any money or take off any money off the contract sum due to errors on the um, on the contractor's part such as overruns so yeah the contractor is in breach of contract and yeah, by virtue of handing over the job late for example and liquidate, liquidated damages will be predefined in the contract at a certain level for a certain duration so that when you enter into contract you, the client, know that for every week that the contractor is late, yeah. he, you, you're entitled to £5,000 per week, say. Mm-hmm. And similarly, it actually benefits the contractor because he knows what his risk, he knows what his liability is if he's late. Yeah. So how do you work out if it's £5,000 a week or if it's £200 a week or a million pounds? <clears> so it's all, it's all based on, basically, and this is getting into some real legal, sort of legal jargon now, the liquidated damages need to be need to serve to put the the party who are not at fault back in the position they would have been if the breach hadn't occurred. Right. Okay. So yeah, the office that you're supposed to get by a certain date. So it could um, be loss of rent yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. If the if the, if the it's rent the you were going to get on it. Cost as well. Yeah. If the, rent, if the rent you were going to get on it was five thousand pounds a week. A, a calculation should be done to assess that and determine that and that's what goes into the but contract. But has that got to be put into the contract before or so for example let's say you look at that and you go well our rent would have been five grand a week but then you get to the end and it's a two year build and actually the market rent has gone up to ten grand a week. That, that's the point of liquidated damages it's it is in the contract then so it doesn't matter if it's a million pound a week Yeah, it's in the contract at five grand a week that's what um, it is. That's yeah. what you're entitled if you're, to. If you're, if you're worried that the market's going to fluctuate massively, don't stipulate the liquidated damages and you have to just go for what's referred get... to as unliquidated damages and then you'll have to go through and just try and recover your losses through well, yeah. some, some, some form of dispute resolution or the courts. But the problem with dispute resolution is it's often 
quite expensive, so I'd always advise to put something in that in that contract to safeguard you. And if you think it's going to be more, put it as more. Yeah. And then if the contractor's not willing to sign it, they're not willing to sign it, but at least they understand what their liabilities are and that's what they're agreeing to and they can price their risk into it. Yeah, but if they don't sign it, then you haven't got a contractor on board. Of course. So it's got to be. It's got to be. Yeah. Realistic, hasn't it? Yeah, and it and it, and it does need to be. And it's fair. Realistic. The, the whole point of this is it, that it's a, a fair one. So, so it goes back to what we were saying before about everyone knows their risk profile when they go into contract. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, what are some of kind of the the, the most common disputes that you see then? So it's, it's not necessarily a common dispute, but it's one that when you sort of ask me what sort of stuff you want to talk about um, I thought this immediately sprang to mind when we talk about disputes and it's it's something that's widely referred to now as smash and grab adjudications and that's catchy yeah I know yeah, <laughs> really, really really sexy stuff so so it's something that you do not want to fall foul of as a developer um, and what it means is if you fail to um, work in accordance with the contract and issue payment notices in line with the contract the contractor as it would be in this case can actually take you to adjudication issue an adjudication notice and for, for for the money that he believes he's entitled to under that payment and because you haven't issued the notices in the in the time that you should have done or in the right format the adjudicator will almost always find that you he is entitled to the money that he applied for no matter how vastly so wrong he, it so is. he might have said this variation uh, should have been, I don't know, well, 10 grand. What it is, what it is, it's, 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 it's payment applications. So he submits a payment application to you for, say, £500,000. It's clearly only worth £200,000, but you don't issue him a payment or a pay less notice in the right time frames. He could go, yeah, you, you, you fail to issue a notice yeah. in then, line with the contract. Here's then, my adjudication notice. You have thirty days to respond. You'll re- you, you, you'll you'll re- respond, but an adjudicator will almost always find that you owe him that five hundred thousand pounds, even though to everyone knows it's worth two hundred thousand yeah. pounds. So it's crucial. So, but that then you can go to the courts to try and get it get it you, back, you but can. it just causes you an absolute you can. massive so cash flow disaster. It's a and, it's, it's a particular and worry cost, at yeah. the end of the job because yeah. imagine you're the end of the job. And the contractor issues you a payment application for five hundred thousand pounds, and you fail to issue the notices, and then you've got paying five hundred thousand pounds. You haven't got the rest of the contract well, to recoup that money. Well, and he can wind up his company, and suddenly, well, hold on a minute, where's all my money gone? Yeah. I can't reclaim it back because he's buggered off to I don't know Barbados. Yeah, so it's they're, they're developing a bit of a notoriety these smash and grab adjudication. So. I think that's a key one to be on top of, and again, that's to make sure that that anyone does do notice. And this is why a contract admin who knows what they're doing is mm. so important, mm. especially on. I mean, I, that's something I never would have an idea about. But even on on smaller jobs, it's just to make sure you're doing everything properly, and it's not just going. Oh well, we're, let's have a call tomorrow and discuss it. It's it's got to be formal yeah. notice and. And uh, and served in the correct way as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth noting that 
only quite savvy contractors will will have the nous to do that. It's a bit like these savvy tenants that know all the rules <laughs> yeah, to exactly. tell you yeah, can't yeah. sort of get yeah. them out when they don't pay your rent. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's understanding these sort of. So if you're dealing with a you're dealing with a, a small a small builder who's doing the house extension, the chances are he's not going to think about that. Yeah. Um, but when you start dealing with bigger, more serious operators. It needs to be thought about. Yeah, and well, and obviously they'll have people acting for them. Yeah, hundred percent. Their roles who yeah. will understand these yeah. rules and go, well, hold on. Even if you do think that they haven't served the correct yeah. notice, so actually 100%. we're going to be entitled to it regardless. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's 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 really interesting. Okay. So, what are your thoughts on recent high-profile cases like these big construction companies going bust? So you got Carillion that obviously went pop. You've got companies like Interserve and Kia, whose share price, I mean, in the last 18 months has, I think, gone down by about 100 times. Uh, I mean, it is crazy. I think Kia's gone from £1,000-plus pounds per share down to under £100 a share, which is absolutely insane. No, it's, no it's, it's a, I think it's now about a pound a share. It was at about, about five, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's is I mean it's crazy how far it's gone down. I mean although that they haven't gone bust yet. And then we've also got these companies that are getting quite famous for saying things like we are working on a 0.5 percent declared margin. It's not just those big boys; it's other contractors mm. coming in. So, do you want to give us your thoughts on? Yeah, so I, I don't know a huge amount about the Carillion situation, but what I do know is that it's just highlighted a massive issue in the way the government procures these public sector contracts um you used the phrase earlier race to the bottom and that is what this is how these things are all procured yeah. so these these companies are chasing these massive jobs you know 350 million pound hospital jobs defense contracts that sort of stuff so they, they want this turnover so they're chasing this you know, chasing these contracts and they're going in at ridiculously low margins which as we found out through Carillion as an example are not sustainable because what happens is and the Carillion one is a good example of this is that you know I think they had four or five big big jobs on you know hundreds of millions of pounds a couple of hospital jobs they suddenly find that they're late on one of them and they're about to incur massive liquidated damages on them or costs go through the roof on one of them if you haven't got a decent sort of cash buffer that you that, that is from profit it doesn't take long for that to go horribly wrong and you suddenly find yourself operating, operating each job at a loss I mean, you're talking about jobs that are worth £350,000 million. That's big, big trouble. And that kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning about doing your due diligence on a contractor. It's understanding what jobs they have on. So will it affect their cash flow yeah. in, in what kind of um, sort of size jobs that they can manage as well? Because the Carillion thing, they profit margins weren't, on, the, on their construction business, weren't actually that low by construction business standards they're still, yeah. still fairly woeful but they weren't like they weren't that bad but where they really came unstuck was that their sort of services arm so the people the, 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 the divisions that provide cleaners to hospitals and that sort of thing they were making no money or no profit do you think that's half the problem is that they kind of went into these services they were originally i think originally a, a construction company and ended up really just being a services company or a human resources company. I mean, they've been doing it a long time, so yeah. you'd, you'd like to think they know what they're doing. They're winning this job at such pathetic margins that it's not sustainable. And then, to add insult to injury, the government then issued them 
a number of other big contracts after they'd issued a couple of profit warnings to try and keep them afloat. And then that made the government look even more ridiculous. So you mentioned the the margins weren't too bad by construction standards. So mm. a lot of the things you see in sort of the news and it's, we hear a lot about is, oh, how can this construction company work at a 0.5% declared margin? So what would you say? Public sector, we talked about, it doesn't work. It's, it's not sustainable. In the private sector, you do hear about companies winning tenders on the basis of a 0.5 or 1% um, overheads and profit margin they will not be looking to get out of that job having made half a percent yeah they they will be looking to make money throughout the you know, th- throughout the course of the job which is which is fine but what it means is that when the changes that inevitably occur they are trying to make money out of those changes all the time so it's they're looking to make money on variations yeah. and yeah. Stuff like that and what about sort of with their subcontractors as well I imagine that if they they might tender a job I don't know the steel work at a million quid so how so how it works is if I'm um, a main contractor my main contract with you the sti- client st- yeah the client yeah. sorry stipulates that the steel package as an example is worth a million quid so you're going to yeah. pay me a million quid to install that steel work yeah now I will then and I'm quite within my rights to do this I will then go out to tender on that steel package to subcontractors so I might be getting prices back from them for 800 grand yeah and that is how you can so you're still making a 20% margin on those costs yeah. I mean okay 20% making... is un- unlikely yeah, but, but, yeah. But, but, but on those costs alone mm. but you're only making that 0.5 so it's kind of these things yeah. once they're blended actually the real profit is probably closer to about I don't know 10 to 15% something like that oh uh, no, that would be that would be very healthy I'm, I'm afraid to say um, okay. I think 5 to 10 yeah okay which still is, isn't, isn't huge, but it's, 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 it's not quite the reality that they'd have us believe. I mean, that's, all, that's, that's, that's after you've paid all your staff and yeah. all your overheads yeah. as well, so it's, not, it's not that, all doom and gloom. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, so what do you think the, fu- the future holds for construction? I mean, we hear a lot about material costs are going up, skilled <laughs> trades are kind of disappearing... What are your main concerns, and, and do you think there's any solutions out there? I guess the key one that sort of springs to mind is the is the skills shortage that you hear about. Is that just because everyone got told to go to university <laughs> and do sort of a degree in, I don't know, well, like my degree of sports nutrition that I I did and things like that? It's, it probably is. I mean, maybe not quite as direct. Going to do a trade. And yeah. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. you hit the nail on the head there. It's people who I don't know twenty or thirty years ago would have. <clears throat> Taking up a you know, a skilled trade, yeah. bricklaying or steel worker or whatever it might be, um, now don't do that. Yeah. Generally, they, they 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 look for a, a job in something that's perceived to be less volatile, paid more, um, etc. The irony is that actually, because of that skill shortage, demand is outstripping supply, and now yeah. brickies, dry liners, plasterers get paid a fortune. Yeah, and that is one of the threats to. It's all good if you're a brickie, I suppose, but for the likes of us who are having to pay these people, it's it's pushing up our build costs. And it's well, it's making a lot of would-be projects unviable, so they don't happen. Therefore, housing doesn't get doesn't get built. Yeah, I mean, and Brexit. No one really knows what's going to happen, but in the event of a hard Brexit, that will have a that will really dampen the the skills situation as well. Yeah. I read something the other day that. Oh, I forget the stats, but unsurprisingly, a lot of the um, the skilled trades workforce in the UK are migrants. 
70% of whatever that percentage is are from the EU. Mm. So it's, it's potentially quite a big deal. Well, what do you think the solutions are, if any? I mean, all I, can really, all I can really think of is somehow making construction a bit more attractive to people. How you do that, I don't know. There needs to be more of a... Sort of grassroots. Yes, yeah, so, so, so there needs to be a concerted effort to go into schools and universities, I suppose, and, yeah. and, and you know, express the, the virtues of, this, of, the, of the industry. Or is there a way of building without the need for certain trades? Can we get, sort of, I don't know... 3D printing and yeah, well, I mean, we talk about modular, but essentially that's just off-site construction. And you still need skilled trades to to do it. Yeah, I mean, you've, yeah, you still need yeah, you still need someone to build that module off-site. Yeah, you? Exactly, uh, yeah. perhaps you don't need as many you, know, you don't need as many operate, operatives, but mm. you still need someone. But yeah, it's, it's it's an option. I think what I'd say to what I say to that is that one of the things that is actually really interesting about um, property and construction is that no one solution fits all. It's all we are talking about modular and prefab and that sort of thing, but can you, how can you utilise sort of modular construction on a basement on a, on a, on a, a basement on Oxford Street? Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. where, where you've got a list, you've got a listed facade that you need some craftsman to um, refurbish for you. Yeah, that, exactly. Things like that, kind of, and that's that's what makes it quite interesting. Yeah, you want, I like the idea of maintaining the heritage of these buildings because it's, you know, it's part of kind of it's an important part of it, isn't it? Definitely. Well, Chris, that's been brilliant. I have picked up uh, a lot of useful information that I will be putting into certainly a lot of my newer projects. Um, and again, it's not about, for me, the things I'm getting were, were more principles of, of what to do rather than sort of worrying about the value of contracts as well. So I think these are things that I can take into every job going forward. Is there anything else that you would like to Yeah, I think I think well, I'd just, just kind of pick up on what you just said is that we have just kind of spoken principles um, so when you actually get into the, the nitty gritty of your next contract you know, speak to someone about it speak to someone who knows what they're talking about because you, know, you don't want to be wasting your time necessarily on worrying about that sort of minutiae but that doesn't make it not important you need someone to be on top of that for you yeah absolutely great points well thank you very much for coming on the show it's been brilliant thank you no thank you it's uh, great to have a chat with someone about the boring world of contracts and <laughs> commercial management. Cheers, Chris. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.